Good afternoon. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to today's show. Having a bit of fun this afternoon, folks. We have one of Canada's most eminent writers with us this afternoon, Lawrence Hill. Y'all know his book, The Book of Negroes. We're going to be discussing that and many more things. Just let me read you this about Lawrence Hill. Lawrence Hill is the son of a black father, a white mom, who came to Canada the day after they married in 1953. Oh, he's written countless books and um, you've heard of most most of them. Uh, his most recent nonfiction book, The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq. He's won numerous awards. He won the National Magazine Award for the best essay published in Canada in 2005 for Is Africa's Pain Black America's Burden? And he's won the American Wilbur Award for Best National Television Documentary. He's a former reporter. You know, I could go on all day, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't have time for the interview. Lawrence Hill is our guest this afternoon. Lawrence Hill. No, I think it's kind of easier to create characters you dislike because you're taking a step away from maybe how you like to view yourself and it's kind of a little liberating to write about somebody who's not necessarily in every respect the person you'd like to think that you could be. I think that it's important to explore that, not just to be creating carbon copies of nice people all the time. There's something fun about writing about sort of characters who have a nasty or a dangerous or a seditious edge to them. What interesting wicked things going to have this person do that would be credible emotionally and that would horrify a reader but make a reader believe in this person and that's kind of a play that's, that's entertaining for a novelist I think. This afternoon the book of Negroes the author and our guest Lawrence Hill right now on Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Lawrence Hill. Of course, you know his books. The book we're going to be talking about this afternoon primarily is The Book of Negroes, and it certainly is a masterpiece. Lawrence Hill is the son of American immigrants, a black father, a white mom, came to Canada the day after they married in 1953. He's won a zillion awards, and if I spent the whole time telling you all these amazing awards he's won, we would run out of time to speak with him today. It is my great pleasure to welcome Lawrence Hill to the show. Thanks for joining us, Lawrence. Brent, thank you for that warm introduction. I'm delighted to be here. The Book of Negroes. Now, I read the book. You're a phenomenal writer. It is a warm, inviting book. One of the main things I was curious about in this book is you chose a strong female role model to take us through the story of this book. Is that based on your mom at all? Well, that's a really interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Well, I suppose every little influence in your childhood and adolescent and young adult life can feed into what you're writing 
writing later on in adulthood. I imagine you could argue that something about having an enduring and surviving and interesting mother helped me to imagine this character. On paper, of course, my mother is the last thing from this character, Amina Diallo. My mother was born in a kind of a, you know, lower middle class white Republican family in Illinois, in Chicago. And the character I've created is an 18th century African woman who becomes a slave and then frees herself and goes on to work to bring about the abolition of the British slave trade. So on paper, they're very different people, of course, and living in very different centuries from different racial backgrounds. Deeper down in the soul, I guess there would be some aspects of my mother that could be found in Aminata, a very enduring person who's deeply devoted to serving and helping others and who never really gave up in her desire to do so, even with some challenges that she met in her own life. So I've never been asked that question before, Brent, but sure, there's something of my mom, I suppose, if she dig down deep enough in that, how I came to imagine this character, sure. Let's talk some more about your mom and your dad, because certainly in 1953, I'm just trying to imagine a white woman marrying a black man in 1953 in the States. What kind of repression did she receive? Well, a fair bit from her own family, but I should quickly tell you that my father's parents, when they married, my father's father was a dark-skinned African-American of a Protestant family, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, kind of working-class religious man who became a minister in that church. And my father's mother, the wife of my grandfather, was from a fairly well-to-do, middle-class, black, Catholic family. And my grandmother's family was scandalized when she announced her intention to marry and did marry a Protestant man. And uh, they did everything they could to undermine and break apart that marriage, because they were just absolutely not going to accept. Even years after the marriage had been made, they still were fighting to try to break that couple apart. And they did not succeed. My grandparents stayed together for 55 years or so until finally my grandfather died. So it's quite a story. But um, as for my parents, they faced some of the wrath that my grandparents faced, but instead of being along religious lines, in the case of my uh, grandparents, it was along racial lines. My mother lost contact of a close nature with some of the people in her family as a result of this, with her brothers, and so really, with the exception of my mother's twin sister, who always was close to and supportive of my mother and who still is, I didn't really grow up with any relatives of my mother's actively in our family imagination or in our family life. It was pretty well all my father's family that became our family, with the exception, of course, of my mother's twin. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Lawrence Hill, and of course you know that name. The Book of Negroes, he's won the Giller Prize and the Impact Award. He's written all kinds of wonderful, wonderful books, both nonfiction and fiction. Simply go to the www.brentholandshow.com website. Click on that book cover. We'll take you right to a place where you can order his books online. The main character we were talking about that takes us through the Book of Negroes is Amita Diallo. Now, what I found very refreshing in her character is she is a Muslim. Of course, people don't realize how integrated Islam was in Africa, in that section of Africa at the time. And her father would carry the Quran around and she would recite from the Quran. And also, one of the things that really moved me in your writing was when she was first abducted by slave traders, she kept calling out Allah Akbar. Could we talk a little bit more about why you gravitated towards making her a Muslim? Well, sure. Well, my character, Aminata Diallo, she's born around approximately 1745 in the interior of West Africa, far from any sea, in a country we now know as Mali, where I've worked as a volunteer, by the way, back in the 80s. In the middle of the 1700s, Islam is spreading slowly through various parts of West Africa, and most certainly including parts of the country, the landlocked country we now know as 
as Mali in, in, in West Africa. Islam is spreading its tentacles. People are converting. You find villages that have some Muslims and some others. Christianity, of course, does not exist in West Africa in this part of the world, in this time and place. No Westerners have penetrated deep into the heart of West Africa yet. Europeans aren't traveling deep within West Africa yet, certainly not in any numbers at all, except for the very odd explorer, and most of them are coming later. So Christianity doesn't exist in, in the interior of West Africa in this time period. Islam does, and there are various other traditional African faiths. But the reason I chose to make her of uh, Islamic origin in terms of her father's side, her mother is not Muslim, but her, her father is, is that she has to be exposed to literacy, and she has to want to learn to read and write herself as a child. She wants to carry that impulse to become literate into her new world as a captive, as a slave in the Americas. And so the only way that she can be exposed to literacy is to have a Muslim father, because only Muslims at this time and place in West Africa were reading. They had books, the book, the Quran, of course. It was the only group of religious peoples that had access to literacy in this time and place. So she had to be Muslim if she was going to be exposed to literacy in the 1750 or so period in West Africa. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Lawrence Hill, we're talking about his exquisite novel, The Book of Negroes, and I want to urge you all to get this. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. He takes us through the various aspects of this woman's life, Amita Diallo, and she's captured, becomes a slave. She reaches Nova Scotia eventually. Yeah, Nova Scotia is the home of Black Canada. Eventually, she goes back to Sierra Leone. I don't want to give too much of the story away, but indeed... There was a big movement afoot for African Americans and Canadians to head back to Africa under their own accord. What were the living conditions like for African Canadians in Nova Scotia? The living conditions for African Canadians living in Nova Scotia in the 1780s, that's the time period in which they first start arriving in large numbers. About 3,000 or so come into Nova Scotia in about a six-month window in 1783. The African Canadians have already been in the area we now know as Nova Scotia for about 150 or so years, 170 years. So there have been African peoples there before, but not in large number. The first big wave of black migration into Canada is into Nova Scotia as black loyalists at the end of the American Revolutionary War. What were the conditions like for blacks living in Nova Scotia at the time? Well, it's a complex question, but to answer quickly, there were slaves who were the property of white United Empire loyalists who took their slave property with them from the United States when they moved to Canada to be loyal to King George III. So these white loyalists brought their slave property with them, and these people remained enslaved when they came in in Nova Scotia. But there also was a strong, active, free community. And so you had free blacks living pretty well side by side, literally, with enslaved blacks in Nova Scotia. So what the conditions were like depended partly on whether you were free or whether you were enslaved. But on the whole, conditions were extremely difficult. And for free people especially, they met with a great deal of uh, deprivation, hostility from others competing for land, difficulties getting land or getting provisions to live off the land, to live with until they could break the land. It was a very hostile environment for them and they were so disgruntled by their mistreatment as people striving to be free and to be recognized as equal Canadians that they accepted an offer from the British abolitionists a voluntary offer to leave Nova Scotia and to go to Africa to create a colony there where they could be free where they wouldn't be in fear of re-enslavement or having their privileges stripped from their political and social privileges and rights and so they were so unhappy that they left many of them in 1792 10 years after they arrived and went to create this colony in West Africa called Freetown Folks, of course, we're speaking with Lawrence Hill. We're talking primarily about his book today, The Book of Negroes, but of course he's got so many more 
His most recent work, of course, is the nonfiction book, The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq. Let's talk about your writing. By the time I was interested in writing and showing it actively as a, as a teenager, as a young adult, my parents were all for it. Really, the way had been broken for me much earlier by my brother, who, who said he was going to become a singer-songwriter and did become a very successful one. And Do you want to mention who your brother is for everybody? He's the singer-songwriter Dan Hill of Sometimes When We Touch fame. No, my parents have, have always been very supportive. And even when I quit my job as a journalist and went off to live in Spain to pursue the dream of writing without any outside interference or without having a job for a while. They were even very encouraging of that. So I must say that really from my childhood on, everything they've done has been to encourage me to follow my passion to write. There's a lot of folks listening right now, primarily university students, as you know, who are thinking about becoming writers. When was it you started to know that you indeed were a writer? I knew that I had to write and that I was passionate about writing from really a very early age, like seven or, or so. I was writing passionately letters to my father asking for certain things and expecting results as a result of these letters. And I got some results, so that encouraged me. Uh, but I started writing short stories when I was 14 or so and just kept on going from there. And certainly by the time I was 14 or 15, I knew that I had to write and that I would write. I didn't know that it would be possible for me to make my living at it, but I knew I wanted to write and that I would and that I'd see where that took me. I was distinctly aware that I didn't seem to have any of the professional ambitions that many of my high school classmates had. I didn't want to become a doctor, and I wasn't salivating to become a lawyer or an accountant or something. I I just wanted to write, (laughs) and so I knew this. Folks, in case you're just joining us, Lawrence Hill is our guest this afternoon, one of Canada's best writers, without a doubt, primarily discussing the book of Negroes, but we're going to talk about some other stuff, too. I'm going to get into Lawrence's writing, because his writing is original. He's defining a style upon himself. It really is unique unto him. One of the things that I was attracted to in the book, there are many things in this wonderful book, The Book of Negroes, is the three-dimensionality, the raving colors of all your characters. How do you approach making a character in your book? They are not two-dimensional characters in any sense. Well, thank you. I guess I approach it by trying to care about the people I'm writing about and trying to imagine them as real people and trying to slip into their voices and by trying to respect them. And one of the things that they tell you in writing school and you hear from other more developed writers is to respect the people you write about even when they're doing despicable things and they're not people you want to have as friends or family. You somehow have to find a way to empathize with them and try to respect their humanity, even if they're doing evil things, like owning slaves or selling them or something like that. Trying to respect people, even the people that you don't feel that you like on the page, is important if you're going to create three-dimensional characters and, and really favoring the imagination. Many people ask about research and all the work involved in researching the Book of Negroes, and I'm happy to talk about that, and it was a great amount of work. But by far the greater challenge wasn't conducting the research or getting my head around the story. I mean, I thought her travels around the world in the 18th century as a black woman, free and then enslaved and then free again. The intellectual story in history was work to acquire, but by far the greatest challenge is to imagine a life and to bring the imagination to the fore as a writer and to let your imagination run wild and to see what you can create of your characters and what kind of stories you can hang on their shoulders and what kind of personality ticks they have and how they're going to get along and not get along and what makes them sort of leap off the page and grab a reader and say, pay attention to me. And the imaginative process is ultimately far more demanding on a novelist than the intellectual process of, say, researching a history or a historical foundation for the novel. So thank you for asking that. 
really, I guess, empathy and caring and taking the time to just dream and, and to imagine a life and then another life and another and then to pay tribute to it on the page is really what it's all about when you're writing a novel. Was it harder for you to create characters you extremely disliked, like the slave traders, as opposed to the characters you had more of an empathy for? No, I think it's kind of easier to create characters you dislike because you're taking a step away from maybe how you like to view yourself. If you like to view yourself in a nice light and think that you're a good guy, then it's kind of a little liberating to write about somebody who's not necessarily in every respect the person you'd like to think that you could be. I think that it's important to explore that as a writer and not just to be creating, I don't know, carbon copies of nice people all the time or something. And so, no, there's something fun about writing about sort of characters who have a nasty or a dangerous or a seditious edge to them. It kind of brings out the playfulness in the writer and what interesting wicked things can I have this person do that would be credible emotionally and that would horrify a reader but make a reader believe in this person. And that's kind of a play that's, that's entertaining for a novelist, I think. How do you create that balance? How do you say, okay, that's too far or that's not far enough? Say, for example, let's stick with the slave trader because I've talked about him. What rings true in yourself to go in that direction or pull back from it? Well, I always like the idea of kind of going for broke on first draft. Just exaggerate the dickens out of everything and just allow yourself to load with ideas on the page and not be sort of hemmed in by self-criticism or by wanting to be too realistic or too polite or too believable. And I always look for the kind of the explosive volcanic energy from within on, on first draft and just see what really great yarn can come out. I think it's good to be over the top first time out of the gates and then to let your intellect come into play a little later to, to shape it in a way that would be more believable for a reader. You can work more with energetic work that you need to tame a bit than trying to breathe life into a dead beast is awfully hard. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's the way I compose as well. I just go for it. I just let everything out on the page and then I go back to it after and figure it out from there. Yeah. Folks, it's we're speaking... Absolutely, absolutely, because then you're not inhibiting yourself to put limitations on yourself. You're just letting the creativity, hopefully, flow out onto the page or onto the score page, if you will. Folks, of course, we're speaking with Lawrence Hill. I'm having a blast this afternoon. He's one of my favorite writers. The book of Negroes, we're talking about primarily, but there's so many more. And I want to talk about that now. You have nonfiction books as well. How do you approach a fictional book as opposed to a nonfiction book? Is there a difference? Are there commonalities? There's both. There are differences and commonalities. I mean, essentially, the commonalities are extremely important. Whether you're writing, in my case, nonfiction or fiction, you have to have energetic writing that reaches out and grabs a reader and says, hey, you know, I'm here. Like, let's get on this roller coaster and go. There's stuff to see and do. Would you just come along, turn off that TV and go on this ride with me? So you need a certain energy and immediacy to the writing. You need clarity and purpose. You want to be able to communicate well with a reader and not let go of that person's lapel once you've grabbed it. So all those things are similarly important in writing fiction and, and nonfiction. Obviously, in the nonfiction that I write, it's necessary to be true, what I understand to be factual accuracy. So if I'm writing a memoir about growing up black and white in Canada, I'm not at liberty to invent something just because it makes a good story. Similarly, if I'm writing about a war deserter who's fled the war in Iraq and is seeking refugee status in Canada, and it's a nonfiction book, it's important that I at least believe that everything I'm writing is factually true and accurate. So the imagination, in some way, is important in nonfiction because you still have to imagine and feel the predicaments that people find themselves in and then to write about them with gusto. But you are constrained by factual matters, and if you're writing traditional nonfiction, which I do, and so that's 
The biggest difference, of course, the imagination really has to become the number one driver of the writing and the final analysis in fiction. But it's, you know, an active partner, maybe at 30% or something in nonfiction. So it's a very different weighing of, of writerly kind of um, interest. And so imagination is far more essential in, in fiction. And in factual accuracy, of course, is is necessary in, in traditional nonfiction. The nice thing about fiction is if you don't know it, make it up. And you should. And the idea is to make it up because you're making up a story that you feel reflects what you believe, deep down what you feel to be probably the way people lived or communicated or did things. And it's your imagination and your view, your vision of a time and a place and the people that you're trying to put down on the page. Whether it's true or not, factually, it really doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. It's not important. What matters is if it seems believable on the page. And it's a very different beast in some ways, but as I said, in terms of the tools of the trade, they're very similar beasts in, in other respects. It sounds like empathy, something that you mentioned before, is important both in fiction and nonfiction. Also, oh, I, sure. also, I want to ask you about your tools, because very often writers come up against writer's block. What do you do to work through that when that happens to you, if it happens to you? But one way to work through it is just to write anything and see what happens. And I think one of the reasons we feel writer's block is that we don't feel confident in what we're doing and we need to just relax a little bit. And the best way to relax is just to do something over and over again until you stop thinking about the fact that you're doing it and you just kind of enjoy the doing and stop thinking about the fact that you're doing it. Getting comfortable and settling into your chair and just getting in a groove and forgetting yourself and just going is facilitated just by speed. And so sometimes if I don't know what to do or to say, just imagining that I'm writing to my best friend or to a close friend or something and just throwing any old words down on the page and seeing where they take me might kind of kickstart me just in the same way that you kind of get an engine going by turning the, pushing the ignition a few times and gunning the gas and hoping that the thing catches, that the car starts to move. Uh, that's something that helps. Writing letters is another great technique, just imagining that you're communicating with a specific person as opposed to writing in, in the abstract, which is a bit more intimidating. And then starting somewhere else. Like if you don't know what to do in chapter three and you really don't know what you're doing in chapter three, maybe just jump ahead to chapter four and start writing there and come back and deal with chapter three later on. And maybe you'll find another entry point into the novel and maybe you'll never need that chapter three anyway. Or maybe you'll find a way to write it later as a result of having written chapter four first. That's great advice. Folks, we're speaking with Lawrence Hill this afternoon. Easy way to get his books. Just go to the www.brentholandshow.com website. As always, just click on the book cover. You can order his books online. We have bounced around your nonfiction book, The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq, Joshua Key. Can we talk about him a little bit? Sure. Joshua Key was born and raised in Oklahoma as a very poor white American growing up in rural Oklahoma, exposed to domestic violence and a great deal of alcohol consumption at an early age and a lot of people shooting guns and having gun accidents and affecting young people even at very early ages. And out of poverty and the lack of employment opportunities, when he has a wife and two very young children and is a pizza delivery man whose only income comes from the tips he gets from delivering pizza, that's how poor he is in trying to support a wife and kids on this ridiculously low income. He finally just kind of decides to sign up for the American Army to get a job. That's why they call it the poverty draft, because it attracts so many people who are impoverished who just need a job desperately. And so he, he signs up for the Army, and the next thing you know, he's sent off to 
the war in Iraq in 2003. And the next thing you know, he's a private on the bottom of the food chain in the military command, American military command. And he's required, as part of his daily duties, to blow up the doors of unarmed Iraqi civilians to charge into their houses and to look for weapons of mass destruction and traumatize the people in the house and arrest pretty well any male over five feet in height and or maybe over 13 or so years of age. And so he, he's so traumatized by what he's required to do, he begins pretty quickly to see the this is an exercise of aggression. They're not finding weapons of mass destruction, but they're creating enemies and people who hate them everywhere they go. He flees the army, comes to Canada from Iraq, he seeks refugee status in Canada, and he asked the Canadian government to let him stay because he doesn't feel he should be required to sort of do this work any longer on the bottom of the food chain in the American military in Iraq. And that's basically his story, which I wrote for him. It's his story and his voice. He's not a writer, so he told me his story in the course of many, many interviews, and I wrote it for him, double-checking everything every step of the way so it indeed reflected what he wanted to say. So that's basically his story. He's still in Canada, still waiting for a final decision from the Canadian authorities about whether he'll be allowed stay. Most, of course, of the American war deserters have been kicked out or are being kicked out. His case is not very good, but on the other hand, it's better than most of the other deserters because of what he was forced to do in Iraq. So he has stronger arguments for not being sent back because of the terrible things he was made to do there. That book, folks, is called The Deserter's Tale, The Story of an Ordinary Soldier Who Walked Away from the War in Iraq. www.brenthollandshow.com Website. Click on the book cover. You can order it right from the comfort of your own home. We're going to have to start to wrap wrap up now, Lawrence, but I'm going to ask you one final question, a question I virtually ask every guest that comes on the show. You're speaking with every university student from coast to coast to coast. Also, this show is broadcast over the internet, so international students as well. What would you say to them? I'd say that life is short, and it's important, I think, to have the courage to listen to the beating of your own heart and not to have somebody else dictate to you what you should be doing with your life. You can really pay for that in dire ways if you listen to others rather than listening to yourself and to find something to be passionate about and to focus on exploring that passion and see where that leads you in terms of your work and in terms of your overall interest. And the other thing I'd say is that as important as it is to get a job and to use your skills in a tangible way and to benefit from all the university studies, there are other things in life besides work and salary and using your skills at university in a specific and tangible way. And one of the richest things that one can do for oneself is to work as a volunteer in other countries or in your own country for that matter in Canada. If you pursue volunteer experiences, whether it's for three days or three weeks or three months or three years in some other country or some other part of the world, I can pretty well guarantee you that you won't be coming back in on your final days of life wishing that you hadn't gone off as a volunteer when you were 20 or 25 years old. On the contrary, you'll be just so rich as a result of having traveled and experienced life, not as a tourist, but working alongside people in their country. So I would suggest that you follow your passions, you have the courage to listen to your own true interests, and that you can consider, among other things, and quite apart from your work, that you consider exploring life as a volunteer in some interesting part of the world, whether it's in Canada or abroad. That's just perfect. One last question. I know you're a runner. What do you run a 5K and a 10K in? Oh, well, I'm pretty slow now. I ran through high school and university, so I guess my fastest 5K time would have been 17-something, and my wow. fastest... Uh, 
10K time, well, that's not really very impressive. It doesn't win any big races or anything. My fastest 10K time, again, nothing to write home about. It would have been 35 minutes. But now, of course, uh, I'm 53 years old, so I'm just a recreational jogger. And I do still like to go in the occasional race. But it's just a jog and to take part and to feel alive and to have a reason to have a donut afterwards or something. <laughs> or an excuse to say. But, but I run to stay alive and to feel healthy and to feel connected with other people. And, but at this point, I, I'm, I'm slow and I just jog uh, to just be out there and be active and be alive well i'll tell you um last time i ran a 5k it took me three days there was just too many donut <laughs> shops on the way <laughs> i want to thank you so much for taking the time out and coming on the show thank you brent it was my great pleasure I want to thank lawrence hill for coming on the show he has a style unique unto himself his books are truly a pleasure to read coming up next time on brent holland trashed how political garbage made the united states canada's largest dump. We're going to be talking with Gordon McKinty. Now, Gordon McKinty started a company that was going to take all of Toronto's garbage, ship it up north, and put it into a landfill project, basically an empty open pit mine. And Jack Layton got into the fray. Yeah, Jack Layton. And you would think he would be behind something like this, a Canadian venture that would create Canadian jobs. But basically, he pulled the plug on it. Gordon McKinty. Jack Layton, as I say in the book, is an extremely intelligent man. I believe, though, that in this instance, he saw the Adams Mine and the garbage issue in the city of Toronto to be a, something that he could hitch his horse to. It raised Jack Layton's profile, both in Toronto and in the province, coming out as Mr. Environmentalist on this issue tremendously. The bottom line is he opposed the Adams Mine landfill. He probably cost the city of Toronto $500 million, and then he sailed off to Ottawa. www.brenthollandshow.com. Do all your online real-life history research right there. What we do is we bring in all the people that have gone through all these tumultuous events. They tell their stories in their own words. You can quote them directly. It doesn't get any more real than that. It's an enormous wealth of information on that site. www.brenthollandshow.com I want to thank you all for listening. I'm Brent Holland. See you next time. <laughs>